And tonight, uh, we do miss Pastor Steve and, and their family. They are on their way back from Miracle Mountain Ranch and will arrive home uh, later on tonight. And so uh, we will pray for them uh, during our prayer time that the Lord would continue to grant them uh, journeying mercies. Please turn in, in a Bible to Genesis 42. Genesis 42 is our passage for tonight. We continue in our study of the book of Genesis. And in our study of Genesis 41, we witnessed the life-changing events that took Joseph from prison to second-in-command in Egypt. After being forgotten for two years by the chief cupbearer whose dream Joseph correctly interpreted, Pharaoh has two dreams that none of his wise men or magicians can interpret. So Joseph is brought from prison to interpret the dreams for Pharaoh. And as he stood before Pharaoh, the most powerful leader in the world at that time, Jesus or Joseph boldly declared God's sovereignty. Joseph declared that God, the ruler of all things, Elohim, would bring to pass seven years of abundance, which were to be followed by seven years of famine. Joseph also proposed a plan for gathering grain during these years of abundance to provide for the people during the years of famine. And in Genesis 41, verses 37 through 41, we read, This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this, in whom is the Spirit of God? And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. After being exalted to this high position, Joseph receives from Pharaoh an Egyptian name. Zephanath Peneel, that likely means God speaks and lives. Joseph also receives an Egyptian wife, Asenath, who is the daughter of the priest of On, and so he is married into nobility. He receives two sons, to whom he gives Hebrew names, showing that although he had been away from his family for at least 13 years, at this point in his life he had not forgotten his heritage. His son's names were Manasseh, which means God has made me forget all my hardship in all my father's house. We see that in verse 51 of chapter 41. And he named the other son Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. We can find that in verse 52 of chapter 41. And while some would see this narrative as just a story of a good boy, who was dealt a bad hand, but perseveres and ultimately ends up being rewarded for all of his perseverance. This narrative of Joseph's life is so much more than that. In fact, it's good for us to be reminded that although Joseph has been the focus of the narrative we've been reading since Genesis 37, the official title of this 10th and last portion of Genesis is found in 37.2, and it says this, These are the generations of Jacob. This last portion of Genesis is about Jacob. And ultimately we know that it's not just about Jacob. It's about God and what he is doing in the lives of his people. And so some would see Joseph's exaltation to second-in-command in Egypt and the implementation of the plan to ultimately provide food that would save the world at that time, they would see that as a great ending to the story. It's actually not the end. It's actually the beginning. It's the beginning of God's reconciling work in the life of Jacob's family. And just as God enabled Joseph to prevail over the many circumstances that he faced to bring him to this point in his life, we will now see God's grace prevailing over human hearts, bringing about his good purposes and his good plans for those in Jacob's family and ultimately for all his people 
whom he loved before the foundation of the world. So in honor of God's word, if you are able, please stand as we will read the first five verses of Genesis 42. (coughs) When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? He said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Please be seated. In this evening's study, we will see the occasion for God's reconciling work. Next, we will see the confrontational context of God's reconciling work. We'll see the early evidence of God's reconciling work, severe testing as part of God's reconciling work, and then seemingly insurmountable reconciling work. Let us first look at the occasion for God's reconciling work. In verse 1, as we return to Jacob and his family, over 20 years have passed since the events of chapter 37. We think chronologically, Joseph was sold into slavery when he was 17. At 30, he became the second in command in Egypt. Then there were seven years of abundance, where he gathered grain from the various places in Egypt. And as we read in Genesis 41, 56 and 57, see, so when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. Imagine what life may have been like in this family during the last 20 years. Jacob, continually in a state of mourning for his favorite son Joseph, presuming that he's dead. The brothers, daily living with the awareness that their father is believing a lie that they caused him to believe, and that even if they told him the truth about what transpired with Joseph, it would be virtually impossible for them to reverse what was done. Or how would Joseph be found and brought back to them? He was sold into slavery. And during this period, the sordid events of Judah's life are detailed in chapter 38. His family is seemingly stuck in this fractured, dysfunctional state. And left to their devices, they would likely have remained in this state, but God ordains a famine which becomes the instrument that he uses and the occasion for the beginning of his reconciling work in the life of Jacob's family. Once again, showing us that God can use even the events that we categorize as bad for his own good purposes. National Geographic defines a famine as a widespread condition in which many people in a country or region are unable to access adequate food supplies. Famines result in malnutrition, starvation, disease, and high death rates. And many people believe that famines are food shortages caused solely by underproduction. However, in many cases, famine has multiple causes. A natural disaster, drought, flooding, extreme cold, insect infestations, or plant disease. So we don't know the 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 factors of this current famine, but we know that it's severe, and we know that it will last for seven years. It's likely that no one here has ever lived through a famine. So it's hard for us to imagine what is going through one's mind and the desperation that occurs as you consider, how am I going to have my next meal? Where is, at this point in time, where is the grain going to come from? For nothing's growing. Everything is dead. As we read in our text, Canaan is experiencing the the effects of the famine. And it seems that word has spread to Canaan that there is grain for sale in Egypt. 
And so in response to this news, and perhaps out of annoyance that he didn't see his sons taking the initiative to respond to this news, Jacob asks, why do you look at one another? seems that the brothers are somehow paralyzed in this state of, of, of not knowing what to do in order to respond effectively to this. And then he instructs his sons to go down to Egypt to buy grain. Think of what the mention of Egypt causes in the brothers. What was the last mention of Egypt, or the last association of Egypt with these brothers. Yes. Yes. They sat and ate, likely hearing the cries of their brother who had been thrown into the pit. They see this caravan of traders coming. They are on their way to Egypt, and instead of killing him, they decide they're going to sell their brother. The only destination that they know these traders are going to is Egypt. So imagine what occurs in their mind when they hear that word, Egypt. Not only hear the word Egypt, but are instructed to go there to buy grain. Verse 3 tells us that ten of the brothers make the 200-mile, likely 10-day journey to Egypt to buy grain. And once again, the ugly dynamic of favoritism on the part of Jacob is shown because he keeps Benjamin behind. Benjamin stays behind because Jacob feared that harm might happen to him. So we see here that Benjamin has replaced Joseph as the favorite son. And because of Jacob's favoritism, he's in essence communicating to the ten other brothers that they're expendable. Because harm could come to them too. He's basically telling them, I'm going to keep the one that really matters to me. You other ten, you go, and you buy grain. And after the brothers arrive in Egypt, we next see the confrontational context of God's reconciling work. Look at verse 6. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. He said, from the land of Canaan, to buy food. While we know more specifics about the past 20 years of Joseph's life, it is interesting to note that since his promotion to second-in-command of Egypt, which occurred over seven years before the events of this passage, Scripture never indicates any attempt by Joseph to learn of the whereabouts or the well-being of his family. He was the second-in-command. He had all the resources of Egypt at his disposal, and he used them for the gathering of grain. And yet, Scripture is silent. It says nothing about him seeking to know what has become of his family. And so we see that this, this famine is not only the instrument that God uses to bring his brothers to Egypt, it's also the instrument that God uses to bring Joseph face to face with his brothers to bring about reconciliation. Look at verse 8. Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, You are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, No, my lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, No, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, We, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested, by the life of Pharaoh. You shall not go from this place. 
unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you, let him bring your brother, while you remain confined, that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you, or else by the life of Pharaoh surely you are spies. And he put, to, he put them all together in custody for three days. Come to our first question from the bulletin. Actually, our first two questions. How could Joseph have responded when his brothers appeared before him? And then how did Joseph respond when his brothers appeared before him? So one question is, how could he have responded? The other one is, how did he respond? How could he have responded? Could have immediately killed them. Okay. Yes, sir. Could have got tried to get revenge on them. And remember when we looked at his promotion to being second in command, we talked about his ability at that point in time to seek revenge on Potiphar and Potiphar's wife and the chief cupbearer who had forgotten him, but he had not. So we see that he could have acted the way that Many of us probably would have acted. Could have sought revenge. Could have imprisoned them. But what did Joseph actually do? How did, how did he respond when his brothers appeared before him? What does the text set say that how he responded? Yes, Narissa, and then Kriya. Read my notes before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, go ahead. What happened before he remembered the dream? It says that he recognized them. How many years have passed? 20 years. And immediately he recognized them. Have you ever seen someone that you might have had conflict with in the past and had a result? And you haven't seen each other for a while, and then all of a sudden you see one another. Doesn't something <laughs> stir in you? Well, it says that he recognized them, but they did not recognize him. And 
think about it from their perspective. When's the last time they saw their brother? A 17-year-old boy likely had some faint facial hair growing in, had a full head of hair probably, and yet standing before them is a 39-year-old Egyptian official. So he recognized them. And then, after he recognized them, he remembered the dreams he had dreamed about them. Genesis 37, 7. This is him speaking to his brothers, telling them about his dream. He says, they were binding sheaves in the field, and Joseph's sheaf arose and stood upright, and your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. That was the dream that he told them. Notice also that he spoke roughly to them, charging them with being spies. We see that in verses 9 and 16. And to be a spy was the essence of being given a death sentence in Egypt. So there were three R's. He recognized them, he remembered his dream, and he spoke roughly to them. But we don't hear anything about revenge. We don't hear anything about retribution. Then in verse 17, he put his brothers in custody for three days. Joseph's not revealing his identity and speaking roughly to his brothers and putting them into custody for three days garners the criticism of some commentators who characterize his actions as coming from spite or simply being mean. However, I disagree with that analysis of Joseph's actions because of what we'll see later in this chapter and what we will see later on in the narrative. Think about it, an immediate reveal of who he was would have been parallel to his behavior as a 17-year-old. He had the dreams. And what did he do? Immediately. Listen to my dream. You're all going to bow down to me. Not much wisdom shown there as to how the others would take that news. The 17-year-old Joseph immediately revealed things, but the 39-year-old Joseph has grown wiser and moves slowly in revealing things, and as a result is being used by God to test the character of his brothers. In doing so, God will use Joseph to successfully test his brothers to see if there is any truth in them, as we read in verse 16. What were the effects of Joseph's response on his brothers? What does the text tell us was the, the effect of, of his response to them? Yes, Terry. Okay. All right. That's part of it. What else? What was their response to his response, the effect of his response upon them? Well, first, there was a shaking of them. His response to them, his speaking roughly to them, shook them. Look at verse 10. They said to him, No, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. Imagine, you're in the place of the brothers. You simply have come with some money to buy food for your family. And the man that is going to give you this food without asking anything of you, says, you're spies. It shook them. Note the words that they use in addressing him. My Lord, your servant. And note the irony of their declaration that they are honest men. He knows them to be anything but. So his response to them shook them. Joseph's response 
uh, to them also enabled him to gain more information about his family because they just started to talk. They just started talking immediately. They were so afraid. And they, in verse 13, it says, And they said, We, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. So immediately he knows Benjamin's still alive. My brother, from the same mother, my brother is still alive. My father is still alive. All information that he had not sought himself. And the last effect of Joseph's response is that it put them in the position of having them consider who would be granted freedom while the rest of them remain confined. Look at verse 15. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you or else by the life of Pharaoh surely you are spies. And after declaring his requirement for their youngest brother to appear before him, Joseph put the brothers into custody for three days. I appreciated James Montgomery Boyce's comments on this. He says this was a matter involving a great wrong. Required per- perceptive and very careful handling. We must remember that these are hardened men. Then Boyce goes on to recount all that we've encountered in the studies of the lives of these brothers, which included the massacre of the Shechemites, Reuben's dishonoring of his father by sleeping with his father's concubine, the selling of Joseph into slavery, and Judah's bearing a son by his daughter-in-law. Boyce continues saying that these were not men a person could treat gently. It took a vigorous shaking by the Prime Minister of Egypt to unsettle them. And if you think it's a foreign concept that there is a confrontational context for God's reconciling work, I point you to the words of the third verse of the hymn, Lord, with glowing heart I praise thee, which says, Praise thy Savior God that drew thee to that cross new life to give, held a blood seal pardon to thee, bade thee look to him and live. Praise the grace whose threats alarm thee. Grace and threats? Yes. It is God's grace to cause one to know that you stand before him guilty and condemned. Praise the grace whose threats alarm thee. Rouse thee from thy fatal ease. Praise the great grace that whispered peace. And arguing from the lesser to the greater, I would point you to the words of Christ. In Matthew 10, verses 34 through 39, where he says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. The person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The gospel is God's work of reconciling man to himself. And in that work is a confrontation of the holiness of God with the unholiness, the ungodliness of a sinner. And it confronts the sinner, requires them to acknowledge their sin, repent of their sin, and look to the only means of salvation, which is the finished work of Jesus Christ. And as we move to the next section of the passage, we see early evidence of God's Reconciling work. Look at verse 18. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody, and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households. Bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. And they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul 
when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. After three days in custody, Joseph has his brothers appear before him again. And when they appear, Joseph adjusts what he previously required of him, of them. And when he does this, he states that he fears God. He fears Elohim. It should have proved striking for these brothers that this Egyptian official would make this statement, but it totally went over their head. He still required their younger, youngest brother to be brought to him, but only one brother would be held back. And this adjustment to the requirement was an act of mercy by Joseph. Think of how much grain one brother could take back to Egypt. He knows that his family is there. But he adjusts it. He says, nine of you will go back, and one of you will remain. I think nine can take back more grain than one. So we see Joseph's mercy shown to his brothers and to his family. Verses 18 through 24 display the early evidence of God's reconciling work in the hearts of Joseph's brothers. What is this early evidence, and how would you characterize this early evidence from a biblical perspective? So we're looking at verses 18 through 24. What is the early evidence of God working in the hearts of Joseph's brothers, and how would you characterize this early evidence from a biblical perspective? So what is, what's the evidence that God is working in their hearts? Yes, Ross. They start remembering their sin. Their statement in verse 21. In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. You see Reuben speaking up. Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy, but you did not listen? So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. Second part of the question, how would you characterize this early evidence from a biblical perspective? Yes. Okay. Showing them grace. Yes. Okay. 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 So, not not yet. Yes, <laughs> Jerry. I think the response is superstitious. Okay. Think of it as karma. Yeah. So, uh, we did something bad, therefore it's happening to us. And what's so, the. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, sorry, sorry. In the biblical perspective, that's, that's not necessarily. Okay. What, what, what biblical term might you use for what you describe? There's some guilt there. But where is the focus? On themselves. Second Corinth. Say that again, Craig. Okay. Listen to Second Corinthians seven ten. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Which would you describe 
their statements as godly grief or worldly grief? Because the focus is on themselves. This is happening to us because of what we did. Worldly grief is sorry for the consequences of what one has done. You see even Reuben standing up and trying to absolve himself, saying, I told you, if you hadn't done that, this wouldn't be happening to us. Focus is completely on themselves. Saw their sin as primarily against their brother, and now they are sorry for their sins because they're suffering in their mind, they're suffering the consequences of their actions. As the brothers spoke with each other, not known to them because an interpreter stood between them, was that Joseph understood what they were saying. And in this first part of verse 24, Joseph is overcome with emotion as he hears the words of his brothers, recognizing that they recognize that they had done wrong toward him. And this is very likely the first time that he learns that Reuben had actually tried to do something to stop their evil plan against them, even though he had been very weak in that effort. The confrontational context of God's reconciling work yielded this early evidence, this time of, of being confronted by their brother, this time of being put into prison, this time of being told, you're going to have to decide who's going home and who's staying here. It's bringing them to this point. But in the next section, we see severe testing as part of God's reconciling work. Look at the last part of verse 24. And he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. Despite his emotions, Joseph went forward with the plan to keep one of the brothers until Benjamin was brought to him. Scripture is silent as to why Simeon was held, but it is noteworthy that Simeon is the oldest of the brothers who wholeheartedly joined in this evil plan, because remember Reuben said, don't do this. And so Simeon sort of became the leader as the oldest brother. But it's also interesting that Simeon, the second son of Leah, was being held until the appearance of Benjamin, the second son of Rachel. Verse 25. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. <coughs> then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, My money has been put, has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this their hearts failed them, and they turned, trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? So imagine the shock. Open the bag of grain, and there is a money bag. One of their sacks. So not only had they been accused of being spies, and now they're returning without Simeon. With this discovery, they now must face the possibility of one of their brothers being considered a thief for leaving Egypt with the grain and the money that they had brought for the grain. Note their response. Since their hearts failed them, or literally went out from them. They trembled, or literally quaked, and they asked the question, what is this that God has done to us? This marks the first time that God is mentioned by these brothers. Well, it's almost certain that they had heard about God and likely used his name in this instance, these brothers are finally recognizing that God is at work in their lives. And this is significant. Remember, they sought to work against what God had indicated to Joseph by plotting together to get rid of the dreamer back in chapter 37. They were the ones who sought to take matters into their own, own hands, 
as we witness with their slaughter of the Shechemites and the previous actions of Reuben and Judah. At this moment, they seem to have recognized their powerlessness to resist what God is doing, and this was only accomplished through their confrontation with Joseph. And now the severe testing that they're experiencing from this new development. So now they finally arrive back in Canaan. Look at verse 29. And they came to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan. He told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But, but we said to him, We are honest men. We have never been spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me, and take grain for the famine of your households, and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me, then I shall know that you are not spies, but honest men. And I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. Note that in recounting the visit to Egypt, the brothers add to Joseph's words by adding in verse 34 that Joseph had promised them that they could possibly trade in the land if they fulfilled his requirements. And this seems to be an effort on their part to sweeten the deal for Jacob so that he would relinquish Benjamin to be taken back with them. But their recounting of the visit took a back seat to their discovery in verse 35 that each of their sacks of money were in the bags of grain. And at this, we're told that both the brothers and Jacob were afraid. This is the same word that Adam used as he responded to God after the fall in Genesis 3.10 when he says, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. These men are basically saying, we're exposed. There is nothing that we can do. How great their fear must have been now that they face the prospect of having all ten brothers to be considered thieves. And they had to weigh the option of not returning, leaving Simeon in custody, or returning and all being taken into custody because they stole the second highest man in command in Egypt. And as the brothers and Jacob weigh all these seemingly bad options, we next see the seemingly great obstacles to God's reconciling work. Look at verse 36. And Jacob their father said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin? All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. This last section of the passage begins and ends with Jacob's response to all that the brothers have recounted to them in the discovery of the money bags in their sacks. This brings us to our next question. What is displayed about Jacob in his words in verses 36 and 38? What is displayed about Jacob in his words in verses 36 and 38? Yes, sir. Mm. He's got 
Jacob continues to show Rachel's, uh, Rachel's son's favoritism. And while he knows that Simeon is still alive, at this point he's refusing to allow Benjamin to go with the brothers in order to get Simeon released. Simeon is expendable. Benjamin is not. What else do we see displayed in these words of Jacob? Yes. He knows that this is going to be to his twelve sons, right? Mm-hmm. And he's still not recognizing he's remaining them a part of God's promise. And he's so laser focused only on Rachel's mm-hmm. few children. Yeah. That is ignoring these gifts that God has given to him. And he's forgotten how God has brought him to like labor and suffering mm-hmm. so many mm-hmm. with uh, those Shechemites also. Yeah. And he's completely What was the other part of the promise? I will be with you. Yet, you see that he is focused in on himself. Verse 36, he says, All this has come against me. No matter that his family is in in danger right now. All of this has come against me. And notice how he addresses Benjamin in verse 38. My son shall not go down with you. My son, not your brother, my go down with you. Jacob's word overwhelming grief. Note that he places responsibility for the loss of Joseph and Simeon at the feet of his sons. He says, you have bereaved me of my children. So it seems that once again, he's recognizing you came home without another one of your brothers. And you came home with money. Because remember, they got money, Joseph, when they sold him into slavery. Here they come. Without Simeon, but with a lot of grain and all of their money. And so we see his overwhelming grief. We see his self-centeredness. We see his favoritism. And we're reminded that God is still refining Jacob. (laughs) Jacob is a reminder to all of us that God has to continually work in our hearts to sanctify us. You remember who Jacob was when we first met him. You remember who he was in his family life. And now we see that not a lot has changed about Jacob here. But God is still at work in Jacob. And one may not want to blame Jacob for his statement in verse 38 because in response to his words in verse 36, Reuben stepped forward with what he thought was a great plan. What was his great plan? Kill my sons if I don't bring Benjamin back to you. Showing that Reuben, who is the oldest, was in no condition to be the leader of his family. If I don't bring back your son, kill your grandsons? Jacob saw this as utter Ridiculousness likely. And this is where we end the chapter. Jacob is experiencing overwhelming grief. He's at this point refusing to send Benjamin back with the brothers to get the freedom of Simeon. And these seem to be insurmountable obstacles to this family being reconciled. Note that I keep using the word seemingly because there is nothing impossible for God.
God had purposed before time began that the promised Redeemer would come from this family. A Redeemer who would overcome even greater obstacles, the reconciliation of sinful, spiritually dead people to a holy God. God's grace will prevail even over these obstacles that we see in the life of Jacob and his family. Well, we are running out of time. I know that we have one last question about how should the Genesis 42 narrative affect our lives, but I do have points of application that I will go through. First, we should see this narrative as descriptive and indicative of how hard the work of reconciliation is but not prescriptive as to how the work of reconciliation should be carried out. Say that again. We should see this narrative as descriptive and indicative that the work of reconciliation is hard. It's hard. But we should not see this narrative as prescriptive, meaning that we should not see this as the way that we go about carrying out reconciliation. What do I mean? We are not to use rough words when someone comes seeking reconciliation with us. We should not seek to to increase the confrontation. These were unique circumstances associated with this situation. Joseph had been sold into slavery. He was separated for over 20 years. And Joseph is, as has been said before, seeking to learn if his brothers had any remorse for what they had done, even though he could see and would later testify to God's working in his life all throughout this time and even through his sinful acts. Note that we have these instructions from the New Testament. Romans 12, 18-21 If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. We have these instructions. We are to seek reconciliation. We're also to know that it's hard. It's hard to forgive often. It's hard for us to be fully reconciled. Secondly, we should recognize that reconciliation requires the participation of both parties. God brought the famine to bring the brothers to Egypt where Joseph was. Would not have been any reconciliation if Joseph stayed in Egypt and the brothers stayed in Canaan. Both parties must be involved in reconciliation. Note that neither neither Joseph nor his brothers made any attempt to reconcile. They made no attempt at all. But God used the famine to bring them face to face with one another. In reconciliation, there's a need to rebuild trust and not just grant forgiveness. We should know also that reconciliation takes time. And then finally, we should praise God for reconciling us to himself through the finished work of Christ. Romans 5, verses 6 through 11. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps For a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, 
Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And then finally, 2 Corinthians 5, 16-21. From now on, therefore we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone one is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What great obstacles. For us, enemies of God, rebels against God, be reconciled to him. And it required the death and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, as we close, and we might have only a few minutes, are there any questions or any comments from the narrative? Yes, I We know that the word of God is true. <laughs> yeah. 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 Yes. Very long time. 2003. Think of what you were doing and where you were in 2003. Yes. the grace of God. Yeah, it truly is the grace of God. Yes, Liz. It, it kind of struck me, though, that the brothers show, talk about how the greatness of Jacob, and we find that in the process of spending 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 God had made him great and precious promises. I will be with you. I will bless you. And yet, he is saying, all this is against me. But we, before we point the finger, <laughs> do we not do the same? Pray, you have the last comment for that. <laughs> Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, scripture is silent as to why he didn't pray. And I would have to look back, but you see that it, it was some time in Jacob's life before a prayer of his is actually recorded. Um, so we, we see that God is definitely continually um, needing to do work in, in his heart as, as he does with all of us. Well, let us, let us pray so that we can get to our prayer time. Our God and Father, we do thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you for this narrative which shows us the work that you did in the hearts and lives of, of Joseph and his brothers and Jacob as well. We know what is to come. But Lord, we also recognize that many of us are in need of reconciliation with others. And Lord, I pray that this passage would have stirred something in us to to be those who would seek reconciliation, that would be peacemakers, would be the ones who are seeking to um, be reconciled uh, with other brothers and sisters or with family members. And Lord, most of all, we thank you for the reconciliation with you that we have in Christ. We know that this work was none of our own doing, but it was all of your grace in sending Christ and in causing your wrath to come upon Christ upon the cross and his being raised on the third day for our justification. Lord, we thank you for your spirit. We pray that you would help us to think upon this passage and Lord, let it bear fruit in our lives to the glory of your name. We do pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.